is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. When the pandemic hit, schools across the country shut down and students went into remote learning. Now, some people at the time criticized the lengthy closures, saying it would hurt the kids academically. Now, a new federal study shows math and reading scores for nine-year-olds fell dramatically during the first two years of the pandemic. We'll go in-depth into how far they dropped and why. We know the pandemic hit adults hard, too. A new survey showing just how hard it's impacted people's mental health locally and across California. And state lawmakers, they passed some big climate change bills with some very lofty goals. But are those goals realistic? The U.N. has sent a team of nuclear experts to Ukraine to check out the large nuclear plant there. One reactor down uh, in the midst of the war. Police across the country have found an online tool. They're using it to track where people go. Problem is, they do it sometimes without warrants. We haven't heard much about hurricanes this year. There haven't really been many. We go in depth into why the Atlantic is so calm right now, although we do have a named storm. And Twitter was asked to do it. Now it's here for some people. The edit button. We start with the big drop in math and reading scores. With us is Ebony Walton, statistician for the National Center for Education Statistics, which conducted the study. Ebony, thanks for being with us. These figures are uh, sobering, disturbing. I, I can come up with a lot of other words. The end result is not good. Yes, that is correct. They are very, um, the declines we're seeing are so widespread that they are sobering. What are the areas where we're seeing the kids hurting the most? Yes. So uh, we conducted a special study of nine-year-olds' performance in mathematics and reading. And what we did was measure uh, students in about the same schools uh, between this two-year period in 2020 and 2022. And what we saw were these significant declines in this last two years, five points down in reading, seven points down in mathematics. And, and what it resulted uh, in is the first ever decline we've seen in mathematics for nine-year-olds in this 50-year assessment. Um, and the declines that we're seeing in reading, uh, we haven't seen declines like these in, since the 80s. And so uh, it, it is, again, like, like I said, very widespread, very sobering. I, I, now, I don't know if the study was able to sort of segment the people, the students being studied to this degree. But I'm wondering whether or not, since some students, as you know, during the pandemic had uh, at-home learning, some didn't do anything, frankly. Do we know whether or not this drop is regardless of whether they had in-home learning or not? Because that would then be an indictment of in-home learning, would it not? So, So that's a very complex question. Um, unfortunately, it will require a lot of special analysis to really tease out the effect of in-person learning. We do have a data point. About 70% of students reported or recalled that they had some type of remote learning over the past year. Um, uh, our data point isn't really um, fine enough to, to disaggregate how much instruction remotely um, could have uh, been attributed to the declines that we see. So we are going to have to unpack data as they come in. We're going to have another release of data for fourth and eighth graders to do a little bit more investigations. Uh, We'll be able to look at state-level results and some urban results. But for now, we do generally see that the declines are widespread. We cannot necessarily associate the degree to that decline in, in the same 
in the way that you're asking about how much um, instruction students received um, remotely. Is um, there a way to gauge whether this is a catch-up sort of thing as the kids get back to school now, or is this now baked mm-hmm. in and they're, they're too far behind? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it's hard to predict uh, what's going to happen in the future. Um, right now, this study just looked at uh, student performance in 22. Uh, we just measured their results earlier this year. Um, so we won't be uh, able to pick up student performance again until around uh, 2025 for this particular assessment. Um, so we will see. Um, it's something that we're going to be looking to see uh, how much improvement will happen um, as students are becoming um, more acquainted with in-person learning. But you know, um, but you know, Ebony, there there has been this concern yeah. expressed by many uh, who were upset that schools were were closed for such a protracted period of time because of the yeah. pandemic that we were would end up with a lost generation, which sounds very melodramatic, but is that a real possibility? Hmm. Uh, I, I, again, think that's a very good question. I will say that we consult with some of the uh, um, top experts and psychometricians um, to help us kind of grasp what these declines really mean. And um, we are certain that um, the pandemic disruptions are definitely a part of the contributed to the declines that we're seeing over the last two years. Um, that seems pretty clear to us. Um, but we do want to point out, though, even before the pandemic, our lower performing students particularly were experiencing declines. And so we have to look at the, the whole trend line, not necessarily just the, the last two years, to kind of understand where students were even before the pandemic began. And, you know, with these other declines, um, it, it, it is going to require um, a, a lot to bolster students up to get to um, pre-pandemic levels. It's going to take a lot. And it's not just from these past two years. Ebony Walton, statistician for the National Center for Education Statistics. They did this survey. Right now, a new survey shows just how much the pandemic has impacted people's mental health across the state and here in L.A. County. Children's Hospital L.A. found almost half of all adults in the state and more than a quarter of teens in L.A. County reported anxiety or depression last year because of the pandemic. Laura Curry is the hospital's executive vice president and chief strategy and transformation officer. Laura, thanks for being with us. So, you know, in our last segment, we're we're reporting on the uh, statistics about uh, school kids and how uh, their reading and math level in elementary school level has dropped uh, by decades, according to this first national study. And we are now learning right about the impact of this pandemic on everybody across the board, not just school kids and not just physical issues either. Uh, we're talking about what sort of mental health issues here. Uh, yeah, it's a really, really good point. Thank you for having me on, and, and thanks for uh, bringing attention to this important issue. You know, here at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we are always trying to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on for children and youth, and uh, what you've uh, described in terms of the impact on their learning um, uh, is also something that we're um, uh, paying a lot of attention to when it comes to mental and behavioral health. So uh, between anxiety, depression, uh, increases in 
um, uh, uh, young people with eating disorders, um, and, a, and a whole host of uh, mental and behavioral health challenges. Our most recent uh, community health needs assessment uh, told us uh, what we've been seeing, which is that we're seeing really substantial growth in the needs uh, that patients and their families have in this regard. And so we're working very hard to make sure that we're responding. Uh, we anticipated this before the pandemic. And, and just like you said, the pandemic has certainly made things a lot more challenging for patients and families. So uh, as we think about children, as we think about adolescents and young adults, lots and lots of need. Yeah, that was something we also heard just a couple minutes ago. In terms of the learning declines, there were a lot of areas where they were already kind of getting hit before the pandemic, then that just made it worse. So is that also the case here that a lot of people were kind of like right on that edge and then you throw a pandemic on top of things and it's really hard to handle? It's, it's absolutely true. And, you know, um, uh, the social benefits uh, that come from being in school and uh, having access to your peers and, and folks outside of your uh, your family and your home are so, so, so important. And so certainly the, uh, the uh, uncertainty that came with the pandemic, the social isolation that came with the pandemic, as well as just uh, the fear that uh, came out of it, uh, has really, really made a big difference. So I think you're right. We were on the cusp of something and certainly saw it accelerate through the pandemic. And really the challenge for us is, uh, that we knew that this need was unmet and undermet before the pandemic. And, and uh, we have a, a much bigger need now and a much larger call to action with which Children's Hospital Los Angeles and those we work with in the community are working really hard to uh, respond to. It would be comforting to think that as the impact of the pandemic lessens, it's still there, obviously, but it has lessened to a large degree that some of these issues will resolve themselves with the tincture of time. But is that necessarily true? You know, it's it's impossible for us to know. What I can tell you is that as we're coming out of what was a really restricted time into something that feels a little bit more normal, the opportunity for us to identify these needs in children and youth, the opportunities that they have to talk about what they're experiencing, and the ability that they're going to have to access the services that they need to address it is going to definitely get a lot better. So uh, whether it's time or increased access, all of it will make a difference. One of the things that's also been important is conversations like this. We have destigmatized this issue you, or at least work towards destigmatizing it in a way that's really, really important. The more we talk about these issues in children uh, and youth, the better we are in identifying it, diagnosing it, making it acceptable, bringing it into the light so that we can uh, bring the experts at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, at our schools, and a, and a whole variety of settings to help address this issue. Yeah, real quick, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, population-wide, kids all the way to adults, are we getting better at, you know, talking about needing to talk? It used to be like, okay, you know, uh, he or she, uh, they're in therapy. They, they have something to work on. Now it's like, you know what? I right. go to therapy once a week. I love my therapist. It's a whole That's different right. kind of thing. It's really very different. And, you know, one a great example is some of the work that we've been doing with our pediatricians in the CHLA care network. Kids go to see their pediatricians, you know, regularly, and that's very important, whether it's for vaccination or to treat um, uh, an illness. And so 
the conversations that are happening in pediatricians offices with parents, with kids, they are much broader and much more inclusive of mental and behavioral health care issues. We have heard for a long time from pediatricians that this comes up. And what's different now is that it, it's coming up with less stigma and we're starting to develop ways to respond to it so that pediatricians are empowered, whether it's because they've got a psychologist or social worker embedded in their clinic, or they have somewhere to refer patients and families, whether it's in the school system or to clinics like the one that we have with the Department of Mental Health or um, uh, within a, a number of our programs. The ability to talk about it and do something about it is really, really different. And, and that makes a, a world of difference in destigmatizing it and making it okay to talk about. Uh, so it's a really good point. And like I said, even having conversations like this, we didn't used to talk about mental and behavioral health in this way. Hmm. Laura Curry, Hospital's Executive Vice President, Chief Strategy Transformation Officer there, Children's Hospital, L.A. And coming up, police across the country using an online tool to track people's movements. But there's concern law enforcement has gone too far. And Twitter will finally let some users test its new edit feature. Right now, though, lawmakers in Sacramento passing a series of new bills to fight climate change, a $54 billion in climate spending, new restrictions on oil and gas drilling, a mandate for the state to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. That'll be for 2045. Dallas Bertrand, senior fellow with Resources for the Future, chairman of the Independent Emissions Market Advisory Committee, which in part analyzes the state's climate policies. Dallas, thanks for being with us. So which one of these packs a bigger punch and uh, which one should we focus on first? Well, the headline is that 2045 goal for net zero carbon emissions for the state. What that means is that uh, overall emissions have to be reduced by 85 percent and then net zero means that there can be other measures like sequestering carbon underground or in forests and elsewhere so that overall the state is making a zero impact on greenhouse gases uh, beginning in 2045. Everything else that happened, uh, which were a lot of other big news also, were all measures that put in place the pieces that would enable that 2045 goal to be realized. Okay, which begs the question, can that 2045 <laughs> goal be realized? No kidding, that's an ambitious goal. It really, once again, puts California into a global leadership position. There are other important jurisdictions, you know, uh, European countries and uh, New York State that have similar goals, but California is taken very seriously on the global stage. So can it be done? The tech, we are at the point now where the technology to do this is available. It's not, this isn't making stuff up anymore. The technology is there. But there are some very uh, awesome hurdles that have to be overcome first, and those have to do with the, the regulations, the coordinations and coordination permitting between land use regulations between local government and state government, and some adjust. I wouldn't say life size, lifestyle sacrifices, but lifestyle choices in terms of the way we all transit and move around our communities, things like that are just going to require some kind of changes similar to the kind of changes that happened between the you know, the horses and the introduction of automobiles a, a century ago. So what kind of changes and how do you get people to make that switch? Well, I think that there's the substantial support for electrification of transportation uh, will be a really important component. And we'll be watching that very carefully. Uh, that if the, with the federal support under the, you know, what has, what is the most important environmental legislation at the federal level in 50 years since the Clean Air Act passed in August, and that was the Inflation Reduction Act. With 
dramatic and substantial support for renewables and for electric vehicles, coupled with state incentives and regulations for to make charging stations available and other measures, then including uh, uh, making vehicles available for low-income households, will drive the revolution in the transportation sector, which is in this decade the most important transition that has to happen in order for us to have a chance of achieving those 2045 goals. But beyond that, there's some other things that have to happen, like how we're gonna get industry to decarbonize. And there's elements of the legislative package that were passed there requiring the state agencies to develop uh, standards to oversee things like carbon capture and storage for industry. So this is the sort of thing that when it's first announced, most people go, oh, that sounds really great. This is terrific. We'll have cleaner air and cleaner water and the whole thing. Uh, and then uh, usually about a week later, you have all these groups coming out of the woodwork trying to thwart all this. Who are the uh, usual suspects? <laughs> Who are the usual suspects? Well, um, I think that the environmental groups uh, at, at the state level and nationally have been arguing that this is an important and attainable goal for some time. Uh, on the, to the, speaking against these measures are like the Western States Petroleum Association, which, you know, wants, who, who is in the business of continuing to see refining and use of petroleum-based products in our transportation services. Uh, the building trades will likely fall on both sides of this. They got several pieces of legislation in this package that uh, will help preserve careers in important industries. And what's really important about this is not, no one's talking about walking away from the, from the way our economy is organized currently, but rather in enabling the transition in that economy such that there are new and better jobs created in the new clean energy economy. But you know, you have a right to be skeptical or at least aware that, the, that this transition is not inconsequential. This is a transition that is really gonna make a big impact and hopefully for the better in terms of the way Californians live and work uh, by 2045. Dallas Bertrand, Senior Fellow, Resources for the Future. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The U.N. worried about Europe's largest nuclear plants in Ukraine. Fighting between Ukraine and Russia has led to the shutdown of a reactor company that runs the plant blames Russian mortar attacks. A U.N. inspection team just arrived today to try to keep the plant safe. Leslie Dewan is a nuclear engineer and co-founder and CEO of Radiant Nano, a nuclear startup company. Leslie, thanks for being with us. What exactly is the fear uh, of what could realistically happen at this reactor? Well, the inspectors are facing a truly unprecedented situation here. And this is a group of people who are used to doing dangerous work. So these are the same people who would have been examining North Korean or Iranian nuclear facilities. But this, and this is where the danger really is, um, they're inspecting a nuclear power plant in the middle of an active war zone. It's something the world has simply never seen before. And we've had a couple close calls up to this point already, right? Early in the war, a lot of us remember that night when there was fighting right there and there were fires burning. And then, what, not too long ago, the power lines were cut, which led to a, a whole nother problem? That's exactly right. So um, one of the key things that the inspectors are going to be looking at is um, looking at the status of the power lines connecting the plant to the grid. So 
These are important because nuclear power plants need an external supply of power to run their cooling pumps. And it was just this morning, for the second time in a week, the plant had to switch to using its backup diesel generators because it was disconnected from the grid. So that puts you one step closer to something going catastrophically wrong at the facility. Okay, so let's talk about what could go wrong. Uh, we're not talking about if if it's uh, bombed, for example, you're not going to have a nuclear explosion, right? Nothing like that. But the risk really is for a leak of radioactive material into the environment. Um, so one issue that's particularly concerning is the spent fuel that's stored on site. So um, the reactor keeps some of its spent fuel in pools adjacent to the facility that are outdoors. And so if that spent fuel storage were to take a direct hit, you could have a localized radiation release at the site. So it wouldn't be something like a Chernobyl situation, but it could be um, a radiation leak equivalent to what happened at Fukushima. You know, and it could be especially bad if that gets into the nearby river, the nearby water supply. What would happen to get us to a Chernobyl situation? This type of plant just physically wouldn't be able to have a Chernobyl type of situation. This um, this physical type of design just isn't able to have that that runaway reaction that happened at at the older Chernobyl style plants. But there is a risk that you could have some type of meltdown if the plant loses its external cooling for a long period of time. And that would lead to a, a Fukushima type situation. And and again, when we talk about a meltdown, explain to listeners what that actually means. Absolutely. So nuclear reactors need to constantly pump water over their uranium fuel to cool it down. If you lose your power to your pumps, you lose your cooling water and the fuel starts to heat up and heat up and heat up until it physically becomes damaged. It starts to melt. And then once it starts to melt, you end up releasing, in the worst case scenario, some radioactive gases that can leach out of it. And that's what happened at Fukushima. Does it blow your mind that there's even fighting this close to this, that there's not some sort of agreement that everyone has tried to come to to you know, stay away, steer clear. I mean, because the wind can blow either direction. Everybody has to know that. Yeah, it's something that it it's so shocking to me. And like truly for me, what makes the situation so concerning is the immense amount of uncertainty at the site. Um, you know, we don't know the extent of damage to buildings. We've lost access to some of the radiation monitors on site. And just fundamentally at a nuclear power plant, there shouldn't be any uncertainty, but that's the situation that we're in right now at the Zaporizhia plant. Leslie Dewan, nuclear engineer, co-founder, CEO, Radiant Nano, a startup company. Police departments and law enforcement agencies across the country have been using a cell phone tracking tool that allows them to follow people's movements, even months back in time. The tracking tool is called Fog reveal. One concern, many police are using it without search warrants. Here with us is Bennett Cyphers, special advisor at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, digital privacy rights advocacy group. They obtain documents and emails about this through the Freedom of Information Act requests. Bennett, thanks for being here. So we gave the, the basics there. They can follow you back in time, uh, even for months, and figure out where you've been in a way that like non-tech people can understand. How does this work? <laughs> sure. Uh, so I'll do my best. Um, so data is collected uh, from 
smartphones through third-party apps that uh, you install um, all the time. And usually it's used for advertising. And that data includes like the apps that you're using, how you use them, and also other information that your phone might have access to, like your location. Um, so what this company, Fog Data Science, does is they buy up the data from millions of phones that's floating out there in the ad tech ecosystem. Um, and then they provide an interface where police can search through that data and look for um, you know, location data about particular devices that might have been near a crime scene or just um, you know, whatever the police might want to search for. Okay. Now, some people may say, well, that's great if they're trying to find somebody who has committed a crime, this makes it easier, but there's a downside. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to think about what is a crime. I mean, people tend to think of like, oh, this will be used to solve rapes and murders and horrible things. Um, but, you know, as of uh, the Dobbs decision in the Supreme Court, uh, it is now a crime in many states to get an abortion or to assist someone in getting an abortion. And I think that's something that a lot of people can imagine themselves doing and probably don't think ethically should be a crime. Um, Likewise, you know, smaller things like possession of uh, small amounts of marijuana is still a crime in some places. Um, so this can legally be used uh, to enforce, you know, every crime that's on the books. Um, it can be used to selectively enforce those kinds of crimes. Um, it can be used to apply pressure to people who are exercising their First Amendment rights by attending protests, uh, maybe protests against police. Um, the problem with this tool is really that, uh, first of all, up until now, it's been secret. And so no one knew that it existed or that police were using it. And so it was impossible to audit it. Um, and even now, now that we know it exists, we still don't know how police are using it. And it seems like there are very few limits on what they can do with it and who they can track. So they would just, what, say that they found these people in some other way, like basic investigations, because it like wouldn't show up in the court records? Like, oh, we found uh, Joe over there because of the, uh, the ways and the Starbucks and the gym membership. And it all showed he was right there. Right. So it seems like uh, what was happening in some places is they would use fog to generate leads um, and then they would like happen to go and talk to those people and not actually reveal that they were using fog to find out, you know, uh, who a particular suspect was. So they would like search an area using fog, figure out where that person lived, uh, who had been at that area at a particular time, and then just go knock on their door um, and perform what's called a knock and talk. Um, and so you know, this person would just have the police show up at their door and not know how they found out, uh, you know, not know how they got started on that investigative trail. So is anybody planning any legislative or regulatory action to lift the fog? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, this is the nice thing about fog, <laughs> if you can call it a nice thing, is that it's at the center of a whole bunch of different issues that people have been concerned about for a long time. One is the rampant collection and sharing and sale of data uh, on the private market, especially around ad tech. Um, this is something that my organization, the EFF, has been advocating for a long time is that, you know, we need better regulation on this private collection and sharing of data. Um, the other is government use of data, um, both acquired from the private market and acquired, you know, through tools that uh, police have, um, like cell site simulators and other kinds of surveillance equipment. And so, Right now, we think, A, there should be better regulation uh, on consumer privacy so that you know, data brokers can't sell this data to anyone. And B, there should be tighter restrictions on what police can do with technology to surveil people uh, under the Fourth Amendment. 
And so there's a lot of there's several different bills uh, that have been introduced in different states and at the national level that would address all of those issues. Um, one more thing I'll add is that the FTC recently announced that they were going to sue a company called Cochava, which is another private data broker that sells data that looks a lot like Fogs. Um, and so if the FTC thinks they can go after that company, hopefully they think they can go after Fog and its ilk as well. The other tricks and, and things they do to, to find where people are. Is this like a, an on-the-budget version? Is that also why they like it? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's on the budget both for, uh, you know, both money-wise, like you can get a subscription to Fog Data Science for less than $10,000 a year, and that gives you uh, over 1,000 queries, um, and you have access to, you know, millions of different devices, allegedly, according to Fog. And so it's, you know, pretty good bang for your buck that way. But also time-wise, um, the data that Fog reveals, uh, no pun intended, uh, can also be acquired by police uh, through court orders um, from companies like Google. And so, you know, what happens a lot out in the open that we know about is that, you know, Google Maps has data about someone and the police will say, hey, we want to know uh, where, like, who was at a particular place at a particular time. They'll serve a court order to Google and Google will respond and say, like, you know, here's who was there at this time we know because they had Google Maps turned on. Um, but Google doesn't really like to do that. Um, and it has to, there's a lot of paperwork involved and often, you know, the police will have to justify why they need that information. They'll have to write up a court order, uh, get it approved. Google can take a couple weeks to respond with the data. So it's costly in terms of time. With Fog, you just purchase this license and then you point and click on, you know, the place you want to surveil or the device that you want to surveil and you get results instantly. Ben, so they can very, perform a lot. Very, very yeah, quickly. Cause, no, no, because we're going to run out of time, but I want to very quickly ask you, can anybody buy this? I mean, for example, could a drug cartel buy it? Could a foreign government <laughs> buy it? So Fogg says they only sell this data to law enforcement and some kinds of private corporations. Uh, we don't know exactly which. Um, but even if Fogg is, you know, pretty good about vetting their customers, uh, this data is floating out there, and a lot of different companies are selling data like it, like Cochava was. And so I would say, yes, it is highly likely that, you know, the quote-unquote bad guys can also buy this exact same kind of data. Bennett Cyphers, Special Advisor, Electronic Frontier Foundation. Bennett, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, let's hope we don't jinx it, but it's been a quiet hurricane season in the Atlantic. Tropical Storm Danielle just forming. It's the first named storm this month and for nearly all of uh, July. Not mm. July. No, no, but so far, it's not a threat to hit land. But why is this season so calm, especially with La Nina, Tyler Barbero is a researcher with Colorado State University's Tropical Weather and Climate Research. Tyler, thanks for being with us. So typically, by the time we hit the uh, beginning of September, how many hurricanes would we have? Hi, Michael Charles. Uh, thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, you know. Uh, typically, the beginning of September is the most active part of the hurricane season. You can expect to see uh, several hurricanes already have formed. Um, but yeah, it varies from season to season, depending on the environmental conditions that you see at each uh, season. What did we expect going into this season? I seem to remember predictions like, oh, this is going to be a really bad one. Right. Yeah. Going forward, um, like you said earlier, we're about 10 days out from peak hurricane season and the tropics are waking up. We are seeing a lot of 
conducive conditions in terms of vertical wind shear and um, moist air. So we should expect to see a lot of activity coming in the future. So it's, it's important to not let your guard down in the coming month. Is climate change making hurricane prediction that much more uh, you know, tentative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, from observations, we've been seeing a, a pretty consistent La Nina over the years. And uh, La Nina affects ba- the, the Atlantic Basin in a different way than it affects the Pacific Basin. But in general, having a La Nina will um, offer conducive conditions for the North Atlantic Basin. Um, so it, it's hard to say about how we can predict it. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to say um, from that. So what? People just count their blessings that it's been pretty quiet so far because we weren't expecting it to be this way. Although the caveat, well, like you said earlier, things are waking up now and we're still at what would be like the peak of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's been pretty quiet so far due to two reasons. Um, there's been a lot of dry air enveloping these storms that have been trying to form up. And there's also been a lot of vertical wind shear. So due to these two specific factors, it's really hard for storms uh, that are trying to form into hurricanes. Um, it, it's really hard for these storms to uh, envelop in, or develop into hurricanes. So that's why we've, we've been seeing a much quieter hurricane season these past couple of months. Is there any reason to believe that we may see fewer but stronger ones? Uh, yes, actually. that uh, That's right. That's one of the basis of uh, climate change. Um, seeing a lot less frequent events, but a lot stronger events like we've been seeing with uh, heat waves, droughts, for example. Um, So a a lot of research has pointed to that. Um, We might see a lot stronger hurricanes, but maybe fewer of them. But, you know, there's a lot of debate and controversial um, opinions out there. So I guess there's also no guarantee that we don't start packing a lot of them in over the next like few weeks. Uh, There's no guarantee, but I, with these, uh, model predictions and what we're seeing in these models, um, you know, it, it's, it looks like the tropics are waking up. So I'd say that um, we will definitely see a lot more hurricanes within the next month. Is there a theoretical limit to how strong a hurricane can be? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question, but um, it's essentially it has to do with um, um, the, the dynamics, so how much moisture and heat you have um, surrounding a hurricane, so its environment, um, and there's a there's a, given that amount of moisture and that amount of heat, you know, it's there's there's a limit. It's kind of yeah, it's that that's a loaded question. I'm not sure if I want to go into that. Wait, 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 wait. Now, why don't you want to go into it? Uh, well. It's a lot of math, and oh, oh, <laughs> I guess yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's as much as I can explain. I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to know. If, I mean, could we have like a, a hurricane with you know I don't know 300 miles an hour way waves? off the charts? Yeah. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, that um, well, we haven't seen. We uh, no, I, I don't think so. We haven't seen hurricane that strong. Um, so good. We'll say good. That's good news. All right. Tyler Barbero, a researcher with Colorado State University's Tropical Weather and Climate Research. Yeah, we'll stop at 299. <laughs> good news, everyone. <laughs> it's only 299. Have you ever sent a tweet and then realized it's not 
really what you wanted to send, but, you know, if you delete it, then you have to start over? Well, Twitter is trying to solve that problem. Yeah, how long have people been asking for an edit button? They said in April, uh, yeah, maybe we'll do this. Twitter Blue subscribers now going to get to tinker with it, test it out in the coming weeks. Adam Rosari, digital marketing expert with agency partner Interactive. Adam, thanks for being here. So that's the part where I have to pay for it, right? That's their, like, side <laughs> service? That's that's exactly right. That's the one you pay for. It's their side service. And, you know, honestly, I'm still trying to figure out what the value of Twitter Blue is. So maybe once this edit feature is available for all Twitter Blue users, that'll be it. I mean, they were probably trying know, to figure it out, too, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you said, you know, people have been asking for this edit feature for, frankly, for years now. And and here's the thing that I think might be a little bit unfortunate about the edit feature. So there's going to be a version history behind your tweets that are edited. So, you know, if, if for whatever reason, those quick Twitter fingers have, I don't know, maybe released a, a misspelling or a punctuation error, error that just drives you nuts. I mean, it's still going to be there because you can actually see in the version history of the tweet that it's, you know, that, that semicolon's out of place or that frowny face is a smiley face, what have you. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily know what the response is going to be to you know, an edit feature that doesn't really let you fully hide that mistake. Yeah, Adam. I mean, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, what, what, what good is that? I mean, if you want to, if you sent out something and it was stupid, or you don't, you know, or it was spelled wrong, or you got who knows, and you edit it, isn't the whole point of editing something so that you get rid of the stuff that was wrong and you present publicly what you want your tweet or whatever the communication form is? To be, yeah. if if people can still see all the dumb things that you did before you, quote, <laughs> edited it, how is that editing it? Yeah, I mean, genius doesn't just happen, right? I mean, sometimes yeah. <laughs> we need that edit feature, right? So, you know, in, in this case, you're going to have 30 minutes to try and, and sort of cover up those issues. But, you know, guys, so far the market hasn't really responded, I think, quite like the leadership team at Twitter would have liked them to. I mean, and I think it's because the market's realizing, well, I don't know if this edit feature is exactly what people want. You know, we know back in April when Elon Musk surveyed his his followers and had like four and a half million votes to his question of, do you want the edit button? I mean, 74% of people said, yeah. And that's a, that's a lot of people, right? That's, that's a huge poll in the world of social media. And is this quite what the world's asking for? I don't think so, guys. And that's why the market hasn't really responded quite so positively. Still, we have, we have a, a company here that the value is driven by Elon Musk headlines and not new features and functionalities, unfortunately for them. Aren't they afraid of the situation that's been brought up every time this edit button discussion gets going, though, is like somebody tweeting, you know, the president is great. And then a bunch of people retweet it and then they change it to the president is a blank. Like and then it's all <laughs> on their feeds like they don't want that to yeah. happen. Exactly. And, and that definitely is something that can happen. Right. I mean, but but that being said, we're going to know about it because of that version history. So, you know, there's got to be some sort of intelligent way to sort of differentiate edits that, you know, maybe just correct like a punctuation error here or there from those that, you know, they're fundamentally changing the concept, the context of what a tweet is supposed to communicate. But I guess I'm trying to figure out what would the rationale be? I mean, it's not a technological one, right? I mean, you can certainly design it so that you edit it and the previous versions are gone. So somebody had to say, no, no, we want to keep all the bad stuff that right. you wrote and uh, have it so that people can see it. What possible reason would there be for that? I, I can't yeah. really think of well, one. It, it's a good question. And I think it's really just a good faith effort to try and 
really just kind of uphold as much integrity and really transparency, the T word, as much transparency behind the tweets that are being released to the public and frankly, by who's releasing those tweets. You know, I don't know if they're quite solving the problem the way they, the public really wants them to, but, you know, I know the, the reason for it though, it really is just to try and maintain as much integrity on the platform as they can. But of course, guys, I mean, this is a platform that has come under fire for all sorts of content, you know, on the platform, good and bad, right? And, and, and whether or not Twitter's leadership team is going to ever successfully be able to solve it, you know, I think it remains to be seen, but I'm not that optimistic. Right. It's not like a happy, super fun place all the time. Um, <laughs> is right. is Elon Musk going to be able to wiggle out of this this deal? It remains to be seen. You know, he's going to he's going before a Delaware court in October. And, you know, my thoughts are this. I think that he made an offer at $54.20 a share to buy Twitter for $44 billion. The market quickly changed. Right now, the, the price per share is basically like a discount of like 15 bucks from that right now. It's the market saying Twitter is worth more like 30 billion or so. And he's sitting here like, well, do I really have to write this check for 44 billion? I, I really think that we're seeing strong arm legal tactics here that are designed to really just bring Twitter to the negotiating table and get them to frankly lower the price. So basically, uh, basically you're saying that he made an offer now he's trying to edit it down. Exactly right. He's trying to, very well put. He's trying to edit the offer, edit that button, or hit that button. But we have the history. Yes, so. that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Sure uh, real quick before before we run out of time, we let you go. But there were all these headlines this week about Snapchat, and everyone seems surprised. Like Snapchat running a bunch of jobs and, and losing value. I haven't opened my Snapchat in like two and a half years, so <laughs> I'm probably not the only one. I mean, is this is this a surprising thing? What's Snapchat? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Snapchat, TikTok. I mean, they're all right now just trying to cut costs. And, you know, they, they, they started the year with these crazy revenue projections. I think TikTok was shooting for like $12 billion or so. And it's looking like it might not happen, right? I mean, these are companies that are dealing with a market where advertisers are struggling and advertisers are having to be very particular about how they spend their marketing dollars. You know, do I spend it on Snapchat? Do I spend it on TikTok or, or, or the meta properties? You know, ultimately, it comes down to what's going to provide the fastest ROI and the most value for shareholders. All right. That's Adam Rosary, digital marketing experts, agency partner, Interactive. Would you pay for Twitter? No. No, neither would I. I mean, I, I don't get what you get. Well, he didn't either. No, I know. I mean, so you, you can edit, but not really edit. It's like for, so, for like, you know, influencers and things like that. Yeah. So, but... I don't know. Can't they influence better for free than to pay for it? <laughs> They're influencing on TikTok instead. Yeah. Uh, that's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.